My name is Lamar Hardwick. I'm a husband, father of three, pastor, scholar, author, and all-around avid reader and lover of all things culture. And in 2014, at the age of 36 years old, I was diagnosed with autism. This is the Autism Pastor Podcast, where we discuss all things culture, politics, faith, religion, and spirituality, all through the lens of someone loving, learning, and living while on the autism spectrum. Welcome to the Autism Pastor Podcast. Hey, this is Lamar. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, this is Lamar. Thank you for tuning in to the Autism Pastor podcast. In this episode, we jump back into our weekly discussion of my new book, Disability in the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. And so we're going to take you straight into the conversation on chapters three and four of my new book, Disability in the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. Enjoy. (laughs) Okay, well, I appreciate that. That was um, a challenging chapter to write so I have a lot of things that I want to bring up um, in that chapter and so I'm going to make reference to a lot of different pages and quotes and read some of those and don't be shy about jumping in so the the bulk of what I talk about in chapters three and four uh, if I were to summarize it two of the probably most critical things to think about and I don't know that we always think about in church or if it's even taught uh, from preaching um, is, you know, having the hard conversation about healing. And then in chapter four, I tackle the hard conversation about heaven. Um, One of the things that I said about, uh, and I don't know if I said this last week, is that, um, and maybe I think it was probably an interview that I did. One of the things I think we're, we're challenged with as Christians uh, and really society, but I see this a lot in, in the Christian faith, uh, is that we seem to get overly fixated on causes and conclusions. And so um, one of the stories that sort of represents that is in chapter three, where um, we talk about the man born blind. And so I won't read that because I trust me you have read that, but It's an interesting story because they asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Uh, And Jesus says, you know, neither 
and he shifts the question. He said, they said, was it his parents that sinned or was it him that sinned? Um, and Jesus says, neither was so that the glory of God might be seen. And so Jesus has this knack, as most rabbis did in the first century, for asking questions. As a matter of fact, uh, rabbis were trained to, to ask questions. That's how they taught their students. And so it was more about questions than it is about answers. So oftentimes when you read the Bible, you see Jesus, when someone asks him a question, sometimes it gets really frustrating because he never, almost never directly answers the question. He always asks another question, but that's how they were trained. And Jesus was a master at that. So in, in, in a way, he sort of shifts the conversation from the question of why can't this man see to how can God be seen? I think that's an important question as we talk about um, serving with and alongside and serving the disability community is to shift the question from causes um, to how we can create community. And then the other thing that I think we get fixated on a lot as Christians is uh, conclusion. And I think that's okay. But I think what you find in especially Western Christianity is we we spend a lot of time on preaching about the cause. You know, if you think about the grand scheme of our faith, which is sin, sin is what caused everything, right? We get that. Uh, and then we jump right to the conclusion. Though the conclusion is, you know, in Christ, we all go to heaven. And we have not, in my opinion, successfully mastered the ability to talk about the quality. So we want to talk about the causes for why life is the way it is, the conclusion for what we want life to be in the end. But we have a hard time managing the quality of life in between. And Jesus's ministry oftentimes points us to the reality that um, we shouldn't necessarily get fixated on the causes or the conclusions. And that's oftentimes because that's a big part of, of how we've been taught. We struggle with the stuff in between. Uh, and so what ends up happening is, and we translate that to disability or anything that we assume to be a part of suffering, um, we focus on what, why does this happen and how is this going to end instead of in the middle, Jesus seems to always point us towards how do we create a quality of life for persons who this has impacted them and how do we create community for persons who is, who are impacted by some of these things. So Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time on uh, causes or conclusions, although he does talk about heaven, but he talks about so many other things about life. Um, and you find that to be a pattern of his ministry. So I, I want to um, spend some time because I asked a lot of questions. Um, and, and some people that have read the book have been challenged by it in good ways, some people not so good ways. In a lot of places, I don't even really try to provide an answer. I just want us to ask better questions and maybe questions that we have not been asking and to figure out how those questions relate to how we view people with disabilities and how we create environments. So one of the pages that I wanted to um, start with, and again, feel free to jump in if you have any comments uh, or questions, is page 64. Um, the second or third full paragraph where it starts is our connection, because I talk about um, starting on page 62, having a hard conversation about healing. I've had that 
conversation with people. I've even had someone um, one time message me, uh, and it may have even been uh, publicly on one of the social media platforms that if I was a real man of God, then God would have healed me uh, of autism. And and what that says is that, and this was maybe like two years ago, so it wasn't that long ago, um, but that's still very prevalent in a lot of circles. And I know that's some things that people wrestle with. And so theologically, I try to help people understand how to, how to wrestle with that. So on page 64, starting at our connection, uh, and, and those who have, who attend my church have heard me preach about this before, uh, our connection to the ministry of healing is complicated by our basic human assumptions about suffering. So that is to assume that um, along with various forms of disability, oftentimes there are things that are very challenging, but also from the outside looking in, there are perceptions about the level of actual suffering that the disability creates. And we'll talk more about the difference between the medical model and the social model. But I go on to say that there's basic human assumptions about suffering, God's role in suffering, and our rights as it pertains to suffering. I believe we have four basic assumptions that complicate our understanding of suffering. One, we believe that good people get good things. All right, so somewhere along the way, we've taught ourselves good people get good things. We've also taught ourselves that bad people get bad things. We've taught ourselves that good and bad cannot coexist. And the main outcome of that is, is that we believe that if God exists and God is good, then bad should not exist. And I share that as a theological framework because a lot of how we view uh, persons with disabilities in the disability community comes from these basic assumptions. And so when we when we have this overemphasis on focusing on causes uh, or conclusions, or sometimes you can you can substitute conclusion with cures uh, or healing in this case, it's because we have basic assumptions about how life works. And so we don't believe that bad should exist if God is good and God does exist. Therefore, anything that we perceive as to be bad or causing suffering, we want it to be erased. Except for when you read the Bible, heaven or healing is not some grand escape plan that God puts in place to snatch us out of, you know, the the snare of suffering. This, this is life as we know it. This is how life is. And so because we have those basic human assumptions, I think that sometimes it it causes us to focus largely on causes. Why is this happening and how can we do something to stop this from happening? So you see a lot of research and those a lot of times those are very good things. But I think we see a lot of research and a lot of money put into how do we stop things like autism or how do we stop things like and and that's to a degree that's necessary. And then as Christians, we focus a lot on conclusions. So, you know, we skip to either we want them to be healed or we primarily focus on, okay, we need to get these people saved. And that's important too. But you even notice when um, Jesus deals with people, he deals with both and, and the middle part, the quality of life. As a matter of fact, one of the parables that Jesus teaches, um, the parable of the talents, if you look at the one before that and after that, The one before it is about the virgins being ready. The one after that is about the conclusion. This is how uh, Jesus is going. This is how God is going to 
possess. That's where he talks about when I was sick, you visited me when I was hungry, you gave me something to, to eat. But in the middle of that, the parable of talents is really about the quality of life. What are you going to do with what God gave you in the lifetime that he's, he's given you. And so Jesus has a, a, a enormous or should have an enormous effect on how we live in that middle section. And for him, the majority of the way that he interacted with the disability community is that he wanted to create community. Um, and he wanted to make sure that they had the best quality of life that they could. So he wasn't necessarily focused on causes or cures, even though he did heal people, he was more focused on the middle community and connection and quality of life. And so um, further down on page 64, um, last paragraph, Peter Kreft makes an insightful observation about our limited perspective of suffering. He writes, most objections to the existence of God from the problem of suffering come from the outside observers who are quite comfortable, whereas those who actually suffer are, as often as not, made into stronger believers by their suffering. And then I go on to say, here's a question that I've been forced to wrestle with over the years. If my understanding of a person's suffering, difference, or disability looking from the outside is limited, then how much more limited is my understanding compared to God's view of and the role in human suffering? And I think that's a good question to ask uh, if, every, if anybody wants to jump in or drop something in the chat. I, I think it's a good question to ask because what we have to admit is that a lot of our view of what people experience is from an outside perspective. And what Peter Kreft talks about is um, oftentimes the person themselves may not have as hard of a time as we place on them. As a matter of fact, he says that sometimes it causes them to become stronger believers because of it. So if that's true, if, if sometimes I project onto people things that, so I'm not saying that people don't have difficult times. I definitely have a difficult time with some of the struggles I have, but oftentimes it's something that is projected from the outside in. And if that's true, how much more do I project my understanding of disability in this world onto God, not understanding God's perspective and God's role. So I think there's something for us to think about, um, you know, as we, as we sort of wrestle with this, and this is, this is foundational work. I think that a lot of churches don't do. We don't spend a lot of time teaching people is to say, okay, what is, what is God's understanding? What is God's view? Um, so <clears throat> let me move on. Then we had um, one comment in the chat that I'll get to in a second here. Uh, and feel free if, if anyone has any comments on that or if you want to drop something in the chat. So understanding how to ask questions or better questions is really the focus of chapter three. Um, and then I go on to say on page 70, um, after I talk about a conversation that I had with a former uh, uh, a person who has a church that I formerly pastored. Um, so Interestingly enough, I wrote about half of this book, pastoring one church and about another half or, or a little bit less pastoring a different church. So I have very different experiences in the course of writing this, but this um, incident, and you can read about it on page I think, 69 and 70, 
was um, a particular person who had a problem uh, with me, quote unquote, um, using the label autism pastor. Now, it needs to be said, because I get this question a lot, that actually did not start with me. Uh, if you trace the history of my pages, it was actually called something different. Um, along the way, I had a woman who I, I'm not even sure where she is now. Um, this is probably 2016, um, early 2016, who kind of coined that phrase when she told me that I am like the pastor for the autism community. Because at the time, and really still now, uh, I get a lot of messages. I get a lot of requests for um, counsel um, for parents. And I mentor a lot of young adults and teenagers, and many of them did not go to church, do not go to church because they weren't finding a place to fit in or welcome. And so for many of them, I was the only source of spiritual care that they were receiving, be it, you know, Zoom meetings or whatever it was. And so she actually coined that phrase and said that you're the, you're the, the pastor for the autism community. And it kind of just stuck. Um, so actually I changed the name of my pages and my Twitter handle um, to autism pastor because it just made it easier for people to find me. So actually I'm not the one who came up with that. That was a, a name that was given to me um, because of the work I was doing with a entire population that was not getting any spiritual care. But I talk about this person who had an issue with that. And I remember telling them that, you know, it only is a problem if you think those two words don't go together. And so some of me keeping it as sort of a, a label or a brand, so to speak, is to break down that stigma to say, you know, these two things absolutely can coexist together. And they're not a contradiction. If God calls, just like he called Moses, um, who Moses admitted that he had a speech impediment, he had a disability. And God said, I know I made your mouth. I'm going to give you an accommodation to help you, but you're still very much capable of living out the call on your life. And so after I had that conversation with um, that person, um, you can find at the bottom of page 70 where uh, I talk, I have a, a lot of good questions. Um, so I'll just read some of that. Um down at the bottom there where I talk about um, the conversation posed an important question that illustrates the unconscious bias of the church when it comes to disability and faith. The question of this person actually helped bring clarity to my call to serve in this capacity. When I responded, I politely pointed out that it was only a problem if we continue to believe that those two words don't belong together. Autism pastor, a pastor who is autistic. How does that sound? Could it be true? Is it necessary to tell people that I have a developmental disability? Am I too uh, quote unquote functional, which is not a term that I love, um, but it's often used. Uh, am I too functional to admit that I have challenges that are invisible to the majority of the people I serve? Then I go on to say, these are all good questions, but I have better questions. Is disability inherently bad? Is disability a bad word? Does my disability disqualify me from being a pastor or from being used by God? These are all great questions, but perhaps the best question is whether disability is included in God's plan for humanity to bear his image. Does my disability distort the reflection of God's image in me? And I think those are important questions to ask. And if we wrestle with that, uh, or if you know people that wrestle with that, how do we come to that conclusion? How did this person come to the conclusion that I should not allow myself to be labeled in that way and they meant well and we actually had uh, probably like a two two and a half hour conversation that ended very well 
Um, but we had to wrestle with these questions. Why was that? Why did that seem inappropriate? Um, is there an inherent bias there that this person believed um, the reason why I shouldn't use that, that quote unquote label? So um, I, I, th- I think that we really have to ask ourselves some very important questions when it comes to that. And so chapter three is really focused on that. Uh, so I have um, a couple notes in the chat. I'm going to start the most recent one first and I'll back up. Uh, this person says that my experience with the church and disability is a blaming of the disabled because the person lacks enough faith, doesn't pray enough, doesn't pray the right prayer, et cetera. I don't understand why any church would tell a disabled person that it's their fault, not that God's world includes disabled people. And and that's true. And, and so thank you for that, that comment. That was a direct message uh, to me. Um, and it's very true. And it's very prevalent. And I was shocked actually at how much that still happens um i've i've had many people a lot of the work that i do um in addition to what i do at church is to consult with churches and um as i said i mentor a lot of people i answer a lot of questions for people a lot of things that i've been doing for the last um six or seven years primarily through social media and like i said zoom uh meetings with people and I, I am shocked that that's still very much a prevalent thought pattern, um, that somehow there's a formula out there that if it's prayed correctly in enough times, it will uh, get rid of the disability. But again, you remember me saying that, I think, especially in the West, and a lot of this has to do with, honestly, prosperity theology. I won't get into that because prosperity theology is I won't get too much into it, but prosperity theology is not primarily about money at the, at its root. It presents a faith that you are able to create formulas using scripture that will, when prayed enough times can somehow manipulate God into acting on your behalf. Now I'm not saying that because Jesus does say, you know, if you pray anything uh, in, in my name and if you, which is really to pray in his nature, the father will give it to you. But some of those scriptures have been taken and, and misused to teach us that, um, you know what, you don't have to actually go through that disability or that suffering. If you had enough faith and you prayed to specific prayers about healing uh, that are found in the Bible. And, and a lot of that honestly is just not true. There's not enough evidence to show that that's how God works. Uh, And that's how faith works. Um, And so I even talk about that um, in the next chapter about, um, you know, how those things work. Um, Another comment that just came in, isn't that the same treatment that economically challenged people face in the church and the world? It's exactly, it's from the same root, uh, actually. And I made a comment about that in a sermon um, a few weeks ago about how it's difficult to for me to support, and I'm not going to name any names, to support organizations that purport teaching people financial and fiscal responsibility um, while insulting people who need the help, right? And so it comes from the same root, right? You're, you are poor because of somehow you don't have enough faith or you haven't prayed the right prayers or you have committed some sin. So all of it is the same root. 
which is why it's important that I started the chapter with what Jesus says when they ask him, what's this, what's the reason for this person's disability, their disadvantage in life, their limitation? Is it because their family sinned, they fell short in some way, or this person sinned? And Jesus says, neither. So that's not a good question to ask. And he shifts the question, which is the whole point of chapter three is, okay, we got to start asking the right questions because how we see people, how we interact with people, how we think that God views those people is really caught up in some sort of um, embedded theology that we have that maybe we haven't taken the time to ask the right questions. Uh, another comment in the chat. Uh, I feel like we're so obsessed with being so polished. That's somehow disability is a shaming quality of put down. I don't have autism, but I have been corrected for saying I clin I'm clinically depressed and anxiety disorder. It made me feel so less than uh, everyone else. Absolutely. That's, that's part of the stigma that we have to get rid of, uh, especially in the church. Um, and you're right. I, I think and I actually <laughs> preached about that this morning. So if you want to go back and uh, listen to um, go to Tri-Cities Church YouTube page or Facebook page, um, we're preaching through the values of our church. And week one is authenticity. And I talk about the fact that uh, the church should be a place where people don't feel like they have to wear a mask and pretend that everything's fine. Um and so that's not in any way to say that there's something wrong with people with disabilities or mental health issues. But I think the church has struggled with creating safe spaces and brave spaces where people can say these are the things that uh, we're currently challenged with and not be shamed for it. Um, and so you're absolutely right. It, it, um, but a lot of that, again, and, and again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, is rooted in prosperity theology most of us only know it for the money aspect but there's some other things going on there um that calls us to believe that and i even talked about it this morning uh one of the reasons why people had such an issue with the apostle paul is because they believe that he had too many problems and so in that day and age it's still pretty prevalent people believe that if you had too many problems or too many challenges or some kind of disability or illness or mental health issue that somehow uh, God was not with you, that God had abandoned you. Um, and so there's, that's still a pretty much a prevalent thought in a lot of circles within Christianity. And so a lot of what they try to do uh, to discredit Paul is to say, Paul, you go through too much. You have too many challenges. You have, too, you, have you know, this thorn that you're talking about. And so somehow they believe that that was an indication that he couldn't possibly be called by God. So you see that over and over and over and over. And so I try to really unpack that in uh, chapters three and four, because before we can get to any of the practical stuff that I talk about on how to become more inclusive, we got to deal with the root of a lot of the problems that we have in the church. And that is we tend to, as someone said, want to create this image where everyone should be polished and uh, perfect. And that's just not how we see things happening in uh, the biblical text. Another comment um, that just came in. Uh, when seeking answers for my child who was diagnosed on the spectrum, I was discouraged by elementary teacher, school teacher and a pediatrician not to seek a label. Um, I've heard that a lot with parents. Uh, I heard that with myself, you know, being an adult, being 36. I, I 
spent my whole life wondering why I couldn't do certain things. And no one, no one seemed to think that I should know what it is that I was struggling with, give me the language to talk about it, and then give me the tools to help me to navigate the world. So here's what I tell parents who have had that struggle. And this is the God's honest truth, because people will tell you, and everybody has a different opinion. Let's say not to seek a label. Here's the God's honest truth. People are already labeling your children, but they're giving your children labels that you have no control over. So they'll label them as, as, as I was a kid, I was labeled a disciplinary problem or kids are being labeled lazy or defiant. Um, many children, especially girls who should be diagnosed on the spectrum are initially being diagnosed with ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, because they want to just say she's just a defiant child. Um, so, so people are already giving us labels what was helpful to me was to get a correct label so that i can be in control of how i present the things that i know now are challenges for me so i can explain them to people help people to understand me um, and then also learn how to build around my strengths oftentimes people say well we don't really see it um if you hang around me long enough you'll see it um but also, the reason why you don't tend to see it is because I don't tend to focus a lot of time on the things that I'm not good at. So you're not necessarily going to see my quote unquote deficiencies because I don't put that out there. I don't put myself in positions and environments where that's the most prominent thing you see about me. And and really, that's what the whole book is about when we get into um, the last couple of chapters about building environments in your churches where the seed can produce what it's supposed to produce, because if we create churches where the environments are right for persons with disabilities and other challenges, then it wouldn't be so much, uh, it wouldn't be as disabling for them because we create an environment for them to actually lead with things that they're good at, their gifts, their skills, their talents, their passions, versus creating environments that accentuate their challenges. Right now, the world as it is constructed, including the church, accentuates people's challenges more than it does their capabilities and so part of the issue is and again you know i talk about that in the book the medical model versus the social model is some of the things that are more disabling for me personally are not the disability itself it's the way that the world is built that highlights the stuff that is a struggle for me i tend to be blessed and privileged to be in a position where i can change the environments around me because I'm the pastor. And so you tend not to see it as much because I, I've learned not to, to consistently put myself in positions where all you see is what I'm not good at. Um, it doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't make you feel confident in me. So I try to put myself in positions where you get to at least see the things that I'm good at more than you see the things that I'm, that I struggle with. Um, thank you all for participating and putting in the, in the, um chat there i, I want to skip to page um 73 um and read a, a quote and i've been saying this uh actually for years i first coined this phrase like in 2011 uh, at the bottom of page 73 where it says religion is good at teaching people to be good without actually being good to people 
Jesus shows that the gospel is not merely spiritual principles and practices. It is inextricably tied to our social responsibility. So therein lies, you know, the challenge where what we're trying to do is not just um, to create, to be overtly religious in the sense that, especially in the West, we, what we have done, you see this all throughout our culture. And I don't want to get too much into uh, a lot of things that we've seen, but you can kind of, if you take a step back, you can see that somewhere along the way we've allowed the faith, especially in the West to be eroded into something where, we can actually consider ourselves to be good people without actually meeting the obligation to be good to people. And part of the issue with uh, disability inclusion is that a lot of churches, especially I talked about the ADA and the church using its religious freedom and religious exemption from being told by the government that they have to comply. Although churches now, modern churches have at least at the bare minimum physical accessibility. Um, but what we've seen over the years is that we have somehow convinced ourselves that we can consider ourselves to be quote unquote good people and not actually follow Jesus's mandate to be good to people. So we don't actually see the connection between uh, justice and righteousness, which for them was the same thing, right? And a lot of ways, the disability in and inclusion discussion is is an issue of justice a lot of what jesus did was restoring people back into the community because they were being unjustly treated by the community on the account of their disability so for them to be right with god and to do the right thing by people were the same thing justice and righteousness if you look it up in the new testament are the exact same word they did not separate those two things Somehow in Western Christianity, we have convinced ourselves that we can be right with God and not do right by people, which has led us to a lot of the stuff that we've seen in our culture where we excuse how we treat people because we honestly think that we can still be right with God and do wrong by his people. Um, And that plays a large part into how we as Christians are more inclusive of persons with disabilities. Um, and so there you see on page 74, where I talk about the ADA. Um, and then I, I talk a little bit about um, Dr. Willie Jennings. So Dr. Jennings is a brilliant man. He wrote a book, uh, several books, but um, on page 75 there towards the middle, I write, Dr. Willie Jennings has done groundbreaking work in helping the church understand its role in creating social in creating social divisions, particularly in America. In his book, The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, Dr. Jennings fleshes out the critical importance of understanding the impact of displacement on socialization and segregation. So Dr. Jennings, and I had uh, the privilege of studying with him for a year at Yale at a one-year uh, one program that I did. Uh, he's a brilliant man. Now, his book is, is mainly focused on helping us to understand the theology and the origins of race and how the church um intentionally in some cases and unintentionally in others uh played a role in that but he says something important that i think is important in this discussion uh here's his quote right under that paragraph uh, on page 75 a christian doctrine of creation is first a doctrine of place and people of divine and human interaction it is first a way of seeing place in its fullest sense christianity is in need of a place to be fully christian one of the first factors in rendering the scriptures impotent and 
and unleashing segregated mentality into social imagination of Christians was a loss of a world where people were bound to land. Um, so what he's saying is absolutely true in those days. Um, and still, in a lot of ways, culture was defined by primarily three things, land, language, and food. Um, you see this even in the New Testament, uh, where you know about the story in Acts where Peter, uh, a sheet comes down and all sorts of animals were on the sheet. And uh, God told Peter to rise and eat. And Peter says, no, I can't touch that. None of it's holy. And God says, you know, don't call unholy the things that I've called clean or don't call profane the things that I've called clean. It was much more than about food. It was about every piece of food on there that a historically Jewish person wouldn't eat was also attached to a particular culture and land. And so those food items represented people groups who God was telling Peter, don't call profane these people groups and cultures that I have considered to be clean. So he was kind of giving Peter a new way of thinking about the world. Even if you go all the way back to Genesis, uh, the, the first thing that God does is create a place for Adam and Eve. So when Dr. Jennings talks about um, the Christian doctrines, the doctrine of place, um, it is God providing uh, a place, not necessarily geographically, but a place uh, at his table, a place uh, in the world, a place as his family, right? And so the place is very important. Um, and you see that even starting with the origin story that God created a place, um, when Adam and Eve were kicked out, one of the things that you see is the trajectory of God trying to get Abraham's um, father to get to Canaan. You know, they eventually ended up in um, in Egypt, but all along, God was trying to move them to a place. When he promised Abraham that I'm going to make you uh, the father of many nations, there was a place where he wanted that to start. He was trying to create uh, a place for them to belong. And then you go all the way to the New Testament, that place for us as Christians is the body of Christ. That's our placement uh, in God's family. W one of the things that is important about what Dr. Jennings talks about, even though he's talking about particularly race, um, what he's saying is, is that, you know, for in this country, and this is true, when when persons from African descent were taken away from their place, um, their land, their culture, and their language, uh, and their food, what ended up happening is the only identification they then had was carried on their bodies. Where prior to that, that was not how people were identified. Go back and read the whole Bible. People are identified by where they were from, who their daddy was, right? It talks about ethnicity, but that wasn't the primarily primary marker of how they identify themselves. So what ends up happening then is I make the correlation between that and the disability community on page 76. When the church created a world where the disabled lost their place at the table and their invitation to the banquet, it created a world that has the same type of discrimination as racism. The moment land is removed as a signifier of identity, this is uh, Dr. Jennings quote, it is also removed as a site of transformation through relationship. So what I'm suggesting is the same that, that he's suggesting. If persons with disabilities don't have a place, then what we leave them with is the only way to identify themselves is by their body. Now, here's the challenge. And someone talked about not you know, seeking a label and why people um, don't want to um, don't want you to talk about, um, you know, a mental health issue or being depressed or any of those other things or disability. When we removed the disability community from a place at the table as a church, we left that community similarly to what Dr. Jennings talks about race. 
We then left that community with the only other way to identify themselves because they don't have a place. The only other way that they can identify themselves is with the bodies that they've been given. So what's troubling about that, and I talk about this in the book, is that the same church who didn't give them a place then looks down on them for identifying with their disability by saying, don't use that label. You need to be healed. You need to get rid of that suffering. You need to, if you're really, um, you know, a person of God, as someone told me, then you would be healed. So the contradiction is there is that you have left, we have left the disability community almost with no choice but to identify with the only thing they can identify with because we've stolen the seats at the table. We've stolen their ability to have a place in the body of Christ. And then we shame them for identifying with the only thing that we've left them with, which is their bodies. Hopefully that makes sense, but we've, we've got to wrestle with that. I talk about that uh, a lot in uh, chapter three. So, you know, go back and read, read those sections, um, especially 76 and 77 and 78 at the end of that chapter. So we have to be careful not to condemn people is what I'm saying. Um, for those who are put in the chat, um, some of your experiences that comes from somewhere. So chapter three is to help us understand where that comes from. And, and again, the problem is, is that we then turn around and disparage people when we have not given them a place. Um, so I got a, uh, another comment here, then I'm going to flip over to chapter four real quick and hit some of the highlights uh, for you to kind of understand a little bit about the thoughts behind some of the things I wrote, but this uh, direct message says, so God includes, but the church chooses to exclude as an ADA or intentional diversity or I've been in a church where your wealth or lack thereof determine your inclusion is a church more interested in its own comfort. Um, I think so. There's a long history to that. That's a good question. Um, and I've actually preached sermons on like the, the origins of where that came from. And so uh, real quickly, sort of the trajectory of that happening in the church started when Constantine passed what was, would be considered a modern day version of the freedom of religion act. So a lot of people say Constantine made Christianity legal. He made all religions legal. Um, and then he, on his deathbed, converted to Christianity and got baptized, although some people think he was just trying to cover his bases. So when Constantine made all religions legal, and then he himself became a Christian, Christianity and the Roman Empire and the Greco-Roman Empire started to gain a lot of credibility, but it also started to gain a lot of cash because it became popular. So long story is sort of that history. It then began to build these giant buildings called basilicas. Um, similar to the West, we have these monstrous buildings that we got to pay for. And I'm giving you some of the dirt, <laughs> the history of the church. So what ends up happening is those people who are affluent, who can help the church meet its budget, became the people who are more favored. And you see James talk about that in the book of James. James is the brother of Jesus. And when he talks about um, I think it's in chapter four of James. Don't quote me on that. When he talks about don't show favoritism, he's basically saying, stop sitting all the rich people in the front row. So as early as the first, second century, we started to see that happen in the church where it was interested in its own comfort. And the, the, the further along that line we got, um, the more exclusionary the church got, not just with persons with disabilities, but, but with poor people as well. Um, so that's a good comment. And I wish I could give you all the church history, but 
Um, you know, anytime uh, money and perceived value becomes a part of how we do church, you're always going to start drawing lines about who's more important and who's not, which is why Jesus, when he talks about the banquet, um, setting the banquet, and we talked about that last week, he says, don't invite your brothers, your sisters, and those people who can repay you. Instead, invite the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled, because Jesus knows that if our attention is on those persons who we think can bring something to the table uh, monetarily or add value, we'll every single time we'll draw exclusionary lines. The problem is every time we draw a line to say who's in and who's out, nine times out of 10, Jesus is on the other side with the people who we say is out. And so we've got to be careful about drawing lines um, about who's in, who's out, because we'll draw a line and, and come to find out Jesus is not standing on our side of the line. He's usually standing on the other side of the line with the people who we've excluded, which is why you see him do a lot of work in the disability community. All right. So number uh, chapter four, uh, real quick, before we wrap up, um, I talk about barriers of inclusion. So this barriers to inclusion, this is the setup. Um, some of the work that I think can be done in the church. And so because we only have a few minutes, um, I primarily talk about something that some people felt like was um, a little bit controversial. And I don't really come to a conclusion, but I think we've got to wrestle with this. So we talked about healing and labels. Chapter four wrestles with the con the question of heaven. Um, so on page 87 at the last paragraph there, I'll read this quickly. Uh, the question of disability in heaven is a good one. So I, I wrestle with a lot of that. If you go back and read it, I talk about where the new body belief comes from. Um, and, and so here's the deal. When I researched it and really read it, um, it doesn't appear that Paul is talking about what we think he's talking about. Um, he's using a lot of Hellenistic, which he tends to do, imagery. Um, and so when I'm talking about putting on a new, uh, tent, uh, in one place, he talks about stripping off the old and, and, in, in my research, I found that he was talking more about persons who were false teachers of the gospel and then being stripped of their baptism robes, um, as a way of being punished for teaching a false gospel. So it wasn't about necessarily, uh, stripping off an old body. He uses Hellenistic imagery, to talk about those things, uh, but make sure that you read that because a lot of what we believe um, actually dictates the point of what I'm trying to get to. It dictates how we construct environments here. So again, on page 87, I talk about the question of disability in heaven is a good one. Does heaven require our bodies to be remade? Is the idea of a new body a reward or a requirement? Are those aspects of disability that shape a person's identity here in this world totally abolished in heaven i ask that question because i get asked the question a lot about healing and again i say very clearly in the book i believe that in the bible jesus did really heal those people i still believe that god can heal today what we do know is that he didn't heal everybody and that some people don't get healed but i talk about the aspects of disability that shape a person's identity because there are some disabilities like mine is a developmental disability that's neurological so in a sense Everything that is true to my personality is wired in my brain. I don't know. And this is an honest question. I don't know if I would be the same person if that were taken away. 
because it's neurological. It's very difficult to conceive of separating that from who I am and how I see the world. And, and even some of the things that people appreciate about my insight and my ability to preach and see things in the Bible, all that comes from my neurology. I don't know that I would be the same person. So I asked that question because there are some instances where there are aspects of disability that shape a person's identity. Not to the extent I say, well, I identify with being autistic as a badge, but literally that's how my brain is wired. How do you heal that and me still be the same person? That's the question that I have. Is it possible that physical, the physical pain and emotional shame of being disabled on earth is eliminated without erasing the bodies that disabled people have already learned how to use effectively here on earth? So I, I, I talk about this on page 88. I think the church has to engage in critical thinking about our theology of resurrection, disabilities in heaven. And here's why I ask that, because you don't have to agree with me and I don't even come to an answer. I don't think in my three years of researching this, I don't think that what Paul is saying is what we think he's saying. So I had to ask myself the question, why do I so desperately need an escape plan from the body that I've been given, whether you're born that way or through circumstances? Why do I desperately need that to be true? It, and, and then here's the reality. At this point in Paul's life, Paul hadn't been to heaven either. So how does he really know? Like he's giving the things that he's talking about when you study it are not actually what we think, but that's a lot of where the belief came from. And so I don't land anywhere on that, but I tell people, here's why this is important. What we believe about the presence and pursuit of perfect bodies and a perfect destination will ultimately shape the expectations we have of the environments we create at our churches. So um, the main point there is not to try to get you to believe something that you don't is to get you to ask better questions like chapter three, to do better research on where that came from and why do we so desperately need that to be true, whether you still land on that or not. I'm, I don't know that I'm certain. I do know that Jesus and his resurrected body, he, retains the marks of impairment and i talk about how roman crucifixion is not the depiction that we often see i talk about in the book how um the the way that he would have been crucified by true roman crucifixion would have rendered him permanently disabled in his hands because it would have torn somewhere between seven or eight ligaments that uh control your hands and tendons if the wrists were the nine inch spikes were driven through his wrists and they weren't healed because he let thomas touch them that would have rendered his body permanently disabled also with his feet the nails wouldn't have went through his feet they would have a roman crucifixion they would have turned his legs sideways and driven the spike somewhere through his achilles tendon and i talk about that i've torn my achilles tendon achilles tendon and it still hurts and that was like seven years ago so i can't imagine that if they weren't healed yet, he could still do things with his body that um, his the impairments did not stop his body from being able to function. So those are the questions that I have. Ultimately, I want you to wrestle with that, but I want you to think about in Christianity, our ideal is heaven. And it should be. Now, it does say that there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying. I believe all that. Um. So my question is, is it possible that we carry the same bodies, but all the shame, the stigma, the pain and the suffering that we endure in this world with the bodies we have is removed so that 
things like disability in heaven don't even matter. And it's more of how we have to live here. But here's the real question, and then I'll wrap up. Because heaven is the ideal, we have to be very cognizant, either subconsciously or consciously. We try to recreate sacred spaces here on earth that are closest to the, our ideals of what a sacred space looks like. You see this all throughout the Old Testament, even in the ways they constructed the tabernacle and then the temple, you know, from the outer court, the inner court, the Holy of Holies, even how they constructed the how God instructed them to construct the Ark of the Covenant. All those were based on ideals of what they believed the afterlife was going to be like. So, so the question is, if we have this ideal of heaven and, and we close our eyes and we think about heaven and there's no disabled bodies anywhere to be found in heaven, it's no wonder why when we go to recreate sacred spaces here on earth, we don't immediately think of disabled bodies inhabiting those sacred spaces. That's what I was trying to get at more than anything else, is that we have to be careful because the way that we construct our churches is based on an ideal, and many times that ideal does not include, and sometimes is very exclusionary of persons with disabilities. So we've got to really wrestle with that idea and figure out why is it that we don't see disabled persons in our churches, because we've constructed an ideal sacred space that we never thought to include them in, from sounds to light to technology to our programming to our mission, our vision, our values. We have constructed those as ideal sacred spaces for people to come and to encounter the presence of God. And we did that without even considering that disabled bodies should also be allowed to inhabit those spaces. That's what the whole heaven conversation is about, um, is to get us to wrestle with our ideals and how those impact the way that we create space. So, um, much more stuff in chapter four that I wanted to get to, but ultimately um, you get to the end of chapter four. And um, I talk about examining the environments. And at the end of it, there are a couple of tips for persons who may be looking for churches of things to look for um, in a church that may not have everything together, but can, can be on the right path to being more inclusive. And then at the end of it, I lay out the barriers and then how we're going to address those. So any comments, questions before I pray for you and we wrap up? Um, one question just popped up. Do you know of any adult autistic Christian communities we're looking for input on redesigning our church to be inclusive? Um, I, I don't know of a just autistic Christian community. I do know that um, Bethany Fox, um, Reverend Dr. Bethany Fox, I don't know if you've heard of her. She has a church out in the West Coast in California, I believe. I think it's called the Beloved Community, where it is specifically, she planted it to um, to cater to and to reach persons with disabilities. And they do a lot of awesome work. She would be somebody to look up. She actually wrote an endorsement. If you look on the back of my book, um, it's the last endorsement there. Um, and she's the author of Disability and the Way of Jesus. And she does a lot more work than I did on the healing ministry of Jesus. Um, she would be a good reference point to see how they're doing it, although it's not exclusively autistic. 
Um, but I know that they're doing a, an incredible job out there on the West Coast. Um, she would probably be a good starting point to to help that. I don't know of any exclusively just autistic um, Christian communities, um, but I would say look her up. Again, if you have the book, she's the last endorsement on there. Just Google her. You'll be able to find um, what they're doing in their church. And she's pretty open. You could probably follow her on social media and reach out to her. A uh, great person um, and doing a great work out there. So check her out. Hey, thanks again for joining us on the Autism Pastor Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, do me a huge favor. Go to wherever you're subscribing to this podcast and hit subscribe so that you get notified every time a new episode drops. And then leave a review uh, wherever you are listening to this podcast because reviews help us to get more exposure, but also to help get out this content as we are seeking to help persons and their churches and faith communities become more inclusive of those with disabilities. Again, wherever you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so that you can get notifications when new episodes drop. And then also do me a favor and drop a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Listen, I'm grateful that you chose to spend this time with us and we look forward to uh, being with you next week in a brand new episode. Peace.